Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. Now tonight, we're going to be talking about the triumphal entry of Christ. And as I said, this is Passion Week or the beginning of Passion Week. And I have uh, designated the title of the message here tonight, The Passion of Christ. Now, in church liturgy, the passion of Christ is often associated with the sufferings of Christ. In fact, uh, the word passion, if you look it up in Webster's Dictionary, one of the definitions is the sufferings of Jesus. And it relates to the, the agonies that he went through in this last week, and it's a reflection on that. Normally, I don't think I think of the word suffering in relationship to the word passion, but in church liturgy, that's, that's how it's aligned. Most often, I think, I, th- I think in terms of, of passion, in terms of emotion, don't you? Uh, whether it's a, a passionate person that's uh, brimming over with enthusiasm or zeal about life, you know, he's just real excited about something, or maybe he's uh, frustrated in, in achieving his goal, so he's got rage and anger, somewhat like Jesus did when he kicked over the uh, money changers' uh, tables. It's this incredible outpouring of emotion. That's what passion means to me. Probably as you thought about it, because I know we got a lot of singles here, you probably thought in terms of romance, didn't you? Because that's how our word is coined so often in a 20th century context. Kind of reminds me of the, uh, the young teenage boy who came to his dad and he said, Dad, how will I know when I'm in love? And he kind of wanted some, some help, some signpost experientially that would allow him to really know that he's in love. And his dad thought for a moment and said to him, well, you'll know you're in love when you look into her eyes the same way that you look into the refrigerator. (laughs) If you have a teenager, you know that's real passion. So on the one side is the sufferings of Christ. On the other side is this incredible emotion Those are two different ways to express the word passion. I'd like to look at a third way here tonight as we talk about the passion of Christ. And I think his passion was far more than emotion. It was far more than just suffering. I think those things can be the flower of passion, but I think there is a root of passion. Passionate people, they're special people. When you're around someone who's passionate, not in terms of these things that I've just mentioned, but in terms of what I'm going to be explaining here tonight, uh, there's something special about them. Uh, Passionate people tend to be people who are more alive than everybody else. They seem to be clear about life. They're more together. They're more sure. They're unwavering. They're they're stable. They're not running off in tangents. They A passionate person seems to be settled with life, and they know where they're going. And because of that, because people can feel that in them, they tend to be attractive and magnetic. And they tend to draw others around them. They have kind of a sparkle about their life. That's what I mean when I'm talking about the word passion. What causes that? What causes a person to be passionate in that way? And what makes a passionate person... And what are the terms that can kind of define that? Well, that's what I want to look at tonight. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 21. Because Matthew 21 
is just another illustration of the most passionate man that I think that ever lived, and that was Jesus himself. And we want to read a section out of his life that celebrates this great day called Palm Sunday and, and, uh, and kind of scratch beneath the surface to discover why Jesus was such a passionate person. Look at verse 1. It says, And when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says something to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Now this took place that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Say to the daughters of Zion, or you say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the fold of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed them, and brought the donkey and the colt and laid on them their garments on which he sat. And most of the multitude spread their garments in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. And the multitudes going before him and those who followed after were crying out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna being save, I pray, or help me. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? The multitudes were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Now you're probably wondering where the passion is in this passage, but it's there. It's beneath the surface. It's clear that Jesus had something extremely special about himself. What was that specialness in Jesus? Well, it probably was not his stature or his physique. You know, you can go through Scripture and except for a brief reference in Isaiah 53 that his stature wasn't exactly exciting, there's nothing mentioned about the look of Jesus Christ. We don't know whether he had a beard or whether he was clean-shaven. We don't know whether he had blue eyes or brown eyes, whether he had light or dark skin, whether he was six foot two or five foot seven. We don't know if uh, uh, he was someone who had a receding hairline or a full head of hair. We just don't know. Well, what made Jesus passionate and what made people draw the magnetism that drew people to Jesus was not his looks. It probably wasn't his personality either, at least in terms of how we think of personality. We don't know, because the scripture doesn't tell us, whether he was a real extrovert, whether he was more introverted, uh, whether he tended to be somewhat moody through his life, or whether he was a real placid kind of personality. That's not what made Jesus someone who was passionate and attractive. And yet, this passage tells us he must have been those things. Look there in verse 10. It says that when he entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred. That word stirred is the word we get seismic from in our language. The King James Version says all the city was shaken. In fact, Matthew uses this word one other time in Matthew 27 when he talks about the earthquake that came or surrounding the events of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus shook up the city when he entered into it. I mean, people were not shaken physically, but they were shaken emotionally 
And they were shaken mentally. All these paradigms that they had about what the Messiah would be like and how powerful he would be and what kind of deliverer he would be. All those things were being crushed as he entered into the city and everybody was running out to him. And there were some who were in the city, as it says, who were going, who is this? I mean, this was an incredible event. I kind of liken it to what might have happened if Arkansas had beat UNLV. <laughs> I mean, Little Rock would be shaken in that kind of atmosphere. Well, this atmosphere had even a greater electricity. They were wondering, could this really be him? But what drew people to him was not his looks or necessarily his personality. There was something much deeper, something that I would just like to call his passion. Now, how do you define passion? Well, on your outlines, let me define it three ways. Three ways that I think can help you understand this. And by the way, I think that the Christian should be passionate about the Christian life. And so these three things that we're going to talk about in Jesus' life are not out of grasp for your life. In fact, I think it should be within our grasp and we should be reaching for it. So we're going to talk about what those three things are. First of all, Jesus had what I call a sure identity. A sure identity. Notice they asked the question, who is this? But that's not a question Jesus would have a hard time answering at all. From the moment of his birth and then reconfirmed at his baptism, Jesus was clear about who he was. He was Emmanuel. He was the one who was going to save Israel from her sins. But in saying that, I want you to know, because Jesus knew clearly who he was, he was very comfortable with himself. So as he rode into this donkey, there was not a lot of fanfare around this, but it was that comfortableness, that surety that attracted the disciples to Jesus and attracted all these people to Jesus. You know, we are people who oftentimes spend enormous energy trying to find an identity. And when we can't find that identity, we spend a lot of time trying to build an image, a false facade, a facsimile of the real thing so that others will think that we have it together okay. You know, the other night when I watched Arkansas play Alabama, the game that they won, there was a, an advertisement in the midst of that game with Andre Agassi. You remember Andre, the tennis player? The one who for a short time professed to be a born-again Christian now is, he kind of makes all his advertising money on being the born-again rebel. In the midst of him selling a bunch of Nike products, at the end of the commercial, the camera draws up real close to Andre Agassi. And he says this. He looks at the camera and he says, after all, image is everything. Remember that? Image is everything. You know, in America, image is everything. And you know why? Because image is what comes in to fill the void when people are lost and confused about who they really are. In our world, we are told that we're to be very self-sufficient. We're told that we're to be people who are independent, we're to be attractive to others, we're to be powerful, and we're to win all the time. And yet I know, and you know, behind the scenes of that kind of facade, that we are really dependent people, aren't we? And we're needy. And we're insufficient. 
and we're inadequate and we're weak and we don't win all the time. And if people could really see us, there's a lot of things that aren't very attractive about us. That scares us and we're not sure how you would feel if you know those things. And we take those inconsistencies and those inadequacies and oftentimes rather than deal with them rightly and properly, what we then go and do is spend enormous sums of money, even into debt, and great blocks and chunks of our time trying to build an image that would make us appear what we know we're not. Right? Don't we do that? And so we, 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 we go out looking for just the right car and we spend hours at the mall finding just the right look. We, we go into enormous debt to build just the right house because we want this image that makes us look independent and self-sufficient and all together. And yet even after we've done that, we still are not sure. Who are we? And when we start feeling bad about ourselves, well, then our world tells us, you're just suffering a loss of self-esteem. You need to love yourself more. You need to feel better about yourself. Pat yourself on the back. Tell, your, tell yourself you're number one. And yet we can do that and we can buy into that kind of pop psychology and be preoccupied with ourselves and that we, we, we have the right look and we, our, our bodies are perfect shape and all that kind of thing. And yet the reality is if there's not clarity about who we really are, all those things are meaningless and they're empty. You know, when you're a pastor for 20 years, you get to peer a lot on the inside of people's lives. You get to see what's behind the surface because they allow you to do that. And that's kind of a sacred trust. But because of that, you begin to know things about people. And you know, when you see somebody who's dripping in gold or they're overly dressed for the occasion or their, their body is perfectly fitted, you know, they've worked out and there's not even a little wrinkle anywhere in them. You know, when I look at a person like that and, they, and, and they, they, they're really concentrating on the exterior, what I have learned is that that's a cry for help. That's really a person inside the bubble saying, I'm lost. I'm really not sure who I am. So I want you to feel like, I want you to see that, you know, and believe that what's out here, that I'm, I'm okay, I'm really these things. But it's just a facade. Rodney Clapp in Christianity Today writes, behind the American preoccupation with appearances lurks a major sickness in our souls. See, real Christianity is a reckoning with reality. That's what real Christianity is. That's what Jesus brought. That's what made Jesus so attractive. He wasn't image at all. He was all reality. And people were drawn to that. That was part of his passion. But to have reality and to have an identity, you've got to have two things that are true about your life. The first is you've got to have an admission, and the second is you've got to have a submission. First of all, you've got to admit that you're weak, and you've got to feel okay about that. You've got to have an admission of your, of your inadequacy, that you're, you're not everything that you wanted other people to know. 
And it's okay to admit fault and weakness and dependence and those kind of things. That's a great relief for many people. They find that they've been fighting all these years against the stream, this great rushing stream, trying to say something that's not true about themselves. And when they finally just turn and float with the stream and say, this is who I am, it's a great relief to them. That's admission. To admit I'm a sinner <laughs> and I'm depraved. And all through me is this selfishness that would love to blame everyone for my problems and never take blame for anything. Then there's a submission. When you finally admit that's who you are, that you're weak and those things, the submission is not that you go and, and tell other people, hey, rescue me, but you look to the living, risen Lord and you say to him, how then shall I live? And all through life, the person who's growing in these things is growing clearer and clearer as to their identity. And when things come up, they recognize their inadequacy. They look to him who makes them adequate. They want to do his will. And they feel settled about life. That's what they saw in Jesus. Someone who was settled about life, who knew who he was. That's why I love the the, uh, the uh, AA program, at least in the first steps, because one of the things that in AA is that there is a statement of my identity. That's how it starts. They sit around and everybody is from different backgrounds and economic levels, but they kind of start out the same. They say, I'm Joe Smith and I'm an alcoholic. What a relief. Because all Joe's life, he's been trying to avoid that reality and put up an image that wasn't true of him. But when he finally said, I'm Joe Smith and I'm an alcoholic, that's a relief because that's reality. In the church of Jesus Christ, it's a wonderful thing when people will say, I'm Joe Smith and I'm a selfish sinner and a child of God. And I realize that unless I follow the will of God, I will accomplish absolutely nothing in this life. Well, that's a clear identity, isn't it? That's an identity I think Jesus had. I think he exuded that kind of comfortableness with himself. I mean, if you look at verse 5, when he came into Jerusalem, which was, was this grand moment with a lot of controversy around it, he didn't come in with a lot of pomp and ceremony. It says that he came in on a donkey, doesn't it? What a way for a king to enter a city on a donkey. No press releases. No advance men. He didn't come in in a golden chariot or riding a giant white steed, a stallion. He wasn't handing out leaflets in the crowd proclaiming his messianic identity. He was just quiet, sitting on a donkey, exuding this confidence of identity, riding in, and yet people knew this was the Christ. And they were glorying with him in that. Do you know who you are? Is there that comfortableness in you? You know, it's, it's, it's easy when you listen to something like this to run a lot of people through your mind. And there are going to be people that will come into your mind who you are attracted to because they have just settled on being a sinner who wants to do the will of God. That's their life. And they're comfortable in that. And then there's other of us here, maybe friends that we know, they're still trying to fit things together 
to make life work on their terms and they're working hard and they're spending money and time and effort and going upstream to make all these things somehow fit and it looks kind of like a weird, you know, jigsaw puzzle and they're exhausted and they still don't know who they are. Could that be you? It's a great moment in a person's life when they finally just say, hey, I'm a child of God. I've got a lot of holes. But for the rest of my life, I'm going to do the will of God as best I can. That's a good identity. Jesus, as the Son of God, knew his identity, and that was part of his passion. Secondly, Jesus had a clear mission. He understood the call of God on his life. You know, our pa passage tells us how Jesus rode into the city, but I want you to know this was an unusual occurrence in Jesus' life. See, at his baptism over in, in, in the book of Matthew, Jesus had come and, and been baptized and said, I am yours. I'm here to do your will. And he was filled with the Spirit. And from that time on for the next three years, Jesus was led by the Spirit to do the will of God. But most often, Jesus did that not in real public settings. He would slip into a city and slip out. Uh, when there got to be a lot of controversy, if you remember, the Scripture often tells how Jesus would slip away. And when he would do a lot of healing and people would say, man, let's really make this thing go, Jesus would tell his disciples, let's leave here. Jesus didn't seem to want a lot of adulation and publicity throughout all of his life until right now. In fact, this is so unusual in this moment that, that some, quote, Bible experts say this is probably a fraudulent text. Now, we know that it's not, but that's how unusual it is. See, when you're doing the will of God, when the call of God is on your life, sometimes God will take you into public settings and controversies that you don't want to be a part of, not in your naturalness. There's a few of us that like controversy, but most of us don't, right? Most of us don't like to march or picket or stand up in a classroom or confront a friend, you know, take on a social issue, wear a bumper sticker, anything else. We'd rather just be anonymous. That's kind of how Jesus was. But see, when he was clear about his mission, sometimes the mission is going to take you into places that you don't necessarily want to go. But you do because you're clear about your mission. Jesus was clear about his mission here. He deliberately goes into the city and stirs up and shakes the city in order to bring about the conclusion of his mission. It didn't matter that it was going to cost him some pain. It didn't matter that it was going to bring upon him some stress because to Jesus, the mission was more important than life. Now, in America, we have that just reversed. Life is more important than any purpose or mission. But that wasn't Jesus. Jesus saw the mission as transcending earthly life. Now, you know, on the flip side of that, people who don't have a mission in life don't feel a call from within. Christians... When they don't feel that call from within and a sense of what they're to do with their life, then they become dispirited, dispassionate people over time. They become people who are just kind of dull. They're more, you know, life is just kind of another thing. And uh, 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 the demands of the church or the demands of people or the Christian community, it's just, a, it's just another thing. 
there's no spring in their step. There's no zeal in their voice. There's no clarity or sparkle in their eyes. They're just kind of being drugged through life and they're dull. And like Mark Twain said, life just becomes one darn thing after another. But there's no clarity to life, no mission in life. That's what Jesus had. But for those people, life becomes, in time, no bigger than just self. Have you been around people like that? Life is just no bigger than self and personal comfort. There's nothing to risk the self for. Uh, life becomes an effort at avoiding pain so you can stay comfortable. Someone said in a magazine I was reading that if the Vikings had wanted to be comfortable, they would have never gotten in those leaky ships and sailed to the Americas. They would have probably just stayed home and jogged a lot. You know? <laughs> Kept in shape. You know, add a few years to their lives. But for what? That's the question. Live for what? It wasn't a big deal that Jesus was going to cut short the quality and quantity of life because the mission was bigger than those things. You see that? What's the mission in your life? See, if there's not, if there's not anything driving you proactively from within, you're not living, you're dying. The tendency is to collapse back into just the comfortable and try to live it out as best you can without any pain. But what kind of lifestyle is that? It's not the Christian lifestyle, I'll guarantee you. That's why as a church, we set up the way we've uh, arranged our church. You know, with the season of life groups and the common cause groups? Season of life groups are a place where you can uh, uh, sharpen yourself and, and encourage others, but grow. But then there comes a place after four years, at least in our setting, where you have to graduate out of a season of life group into a common cause group. And the key word to common cause is mission. Last year, we put everyone in season of life groups and started the timer on the stove, you know? Tick, 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 tick. Now it's not four years, it's three years. Anybody sweating? Next year, it'll be two years. Then one year. Then it's graduation. And when you graduate, if it comes and you're still lost as to the place of service, or you have no idea what you're going to do with your life, then here's what I want you to understand. You'll be fighting for comfort. You'll be fighting against people because you'll say, I don't like this. This is uncomfortable. But you'll be missing the real gem of life which is to have, or at least be on the search for something that will drive your life all the way to the end. So at the end of your life, you're still asking God, I, can I stay a little longer to do these things? Rather than just sitting there, taking some pills and trying to stay healthy enough to watch the next ball game until God takes you. Now we laugh about that, but there are a lot of people like that, aren't there? dispirited, dispassionate people. I don't want to end that way. I want to end passionate. Clear about who I am. Clear about my mission. Wanting to take even more time to make a difference for the cause of Christ. That's what we're talking about here. See, God, or maybe I should say Christ, when he rode into the city, these people, they thought that he was going to make them comfortable. 
Now, if you know anything about the setting here, these people are cheering him because they think, hey, he's going to come and throw off the Roman yoke, the Roman oppressors, set up the kingdom here, make Israel the jewel of planet Earth, and we'll get all the attention and life will just be easy. Jesus had no such thought. He was coming into the city with a whole different mindset. His was to take over. His was to make people obedient, into service, action-oriented. They didn't know that. At least they didn't know that today, Sunday. Some of them figured it out on Monday when he kicked over the tables in the temple. Tuesday, they figured it out a little bit more. Started becoming a little clearer. By Friday, you know what they did? <laughs> they killed him. That's what they did. When they figured out he wasn't going to do what they wanted, their comfort, they killed him. C.S. Lewis calls Jesus Christ, I like this phrase, he calls Jesus Christ the great interferer. The great interferer. He interferes with our lives. John Stott adds, we resent his intrusions into our privacy, his demands for our homage, his expectations of our obedience to him. We perceive him as one who disturbs our peace, who upsets the status quo and undermines our authority. And we don't like it. And then we want to get rid of him too. You know something? If you would have been there, if I would have been there on Friday, we would have yelled, crucify him. See, there comes a place where a man or a woman has to say, I'm here to serve. I have a mission. I've been given gifts to employ. Yet some of you are going to probably say, or maybe are saying now, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. What, what am I supposed to do? And I used to listen to that and think, gosh, I don't know. But you know, I don't buy that anymore. Not for my life or for anybody else's because this book is filled with things to do. And if you don't necessarily feel like one of them, just start picking one and start doing it. God loves to shape and direct a moving object. Maybe you can help the poor. Maybe you can travel to a foreign land. Maybe you can have an international student like Nick was talking about into your home to evangelize. Maybe you can take some of the natural gifts that you have and spiritualize them or, or, or add a spiritual element to it. Maybe you are good in finance. Well, great. Maybe you're good in finance. Why don't you take that and round up some single parents and use that financial skill to teach those single parents on a tight budget how to manage their money? Maybe you're a doctor. Why don't you take a half day and give it free to the poor? Maybe you've got incredible hurts in your life. Why don't you work on those hurts until Christ has given you healing and then turn that into a ministry? Maybe you're a homosexual. Get healed and become a leader in this community for the homosexuals. Maybe you've been an alcoholic. Get healed. And then turn that healing into a ministry to those who have chemical dependent problems. If you can teach, teach. If you can counsel, counsel. If you've had a great marriage and your kids have turned out great and your wife is happy and you know this incredible wealth of wisdom, then turn around and look at this younger generation who's totally dysfunctional and most of them have grown up in a single parent home and help them in their marriages understand how to make marriage work. Have a mission. 
Don't let it get by you. Have something to live for. Count for Christ. See, that's what made Jesus have a clear identity. That's what people were drawn to because he knew exactly what he was supposed to do, and he did it. Now, some of you will say that you're scared, but you know, Christ's disciples were scared. You know, they were in a season of life group for three years. He cut it short. They didn't like that. He kicked them out and put them in a common cause group. And Max Lucado tells us what that common cause group felt like when they first met on the first night. Let me read it to you. The door is locked, dead bolted, maybe even a chair under the doorknob. Inside sits 10 knee-knocking itinerants who have straddled the fence between faith and fear. As you look around the room, you wouldn't take them for a bunch who are about to put the kettle of history on high boil. They are un uneducated, confused, calloused hands, heavy accents, few social graces, limited knowledge of the world, <laughs> no money, undefined leadership, and on and on. No, as you look at this motley crew, you wouldn't wager too many paychecks on their future. But something happens to a man when he witnesses someone who has risen from the dead. Something stirs within the soul of a man who has stood within inches of God. Something stirs that is hotter than gold fever and more permanent than love. It all started when ten stammering, stuttering men, and through the door was, though the door was locked, he stood in their midst, and he said to them, As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And send them he did. Ports, courtyards, boats, synagogues, prisons, palaces, they went everywhere. Their message of the Nazarene dominoed across the civilized world. They were an infectious fever. They were a moving organism. They refused to be stopped. Uneducated drifters who shook history like a housewife shakes a rug. My, wouldn't it be great to see it happen again? Many say it's impossible. The world is too hard, too secular, too post-Christian. This is the age of information, not regeneration. So we deadbolt the door for fear of the world. And if we do, we lock ourselves out of passion. See, the church of Jesus Christ is to be filled with passionate people, people who know who they are, people who have yielded to him who is God, and they know exactly what they need to do, and they go about the work. When that happens, there is an incredible shaking of a community. You know, in the years to come, my heart's desire is that our church will become that kind of shaking community of believers. Finding our mission, it puts passion into our life. And then lastly, not only did Jesus have a sure identity and a clear mission, but he was willing to die for it. Death. You know, for so many of us, it's the end of all things, even as Christians. Something to be avoided at all costs. But we look at death so permanent, and it's not. 
Jesus knew when he went into the city this day, as he was riding on his donkey, he knew he was going to die. Look back at chapter 20. Look at verse 17. This is before he entered into this triumphant entry and how bittersweet it must have been. But when he was going up to Jerusalem, it says he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves. He pulled them alongside himself and said, I ain't got a secret to tell you. And here's what he said, verse 18. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and to crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. Jesus knew he was going to die. But you know, Jesus could answer this question in the positive. Is there anything worth dying for? Sandy, we're great to have you back from uh, Desert Storm. And I, I thought about all the people in our church who had the, uh, that mission to go over there and the cost that it involved. But during the time many of those soldiers were away, there were protesters who were protesting in the streets saying, no blood for oil, no blood for oil. Remember that? And yet there were a few insightful commentators because there were a number of issues involved in that crisis who asked the deeper question, what is there, what is it that's worth dying for? It's a good question. What is it that is worth you expending your life short of what it would normally be? Is there something out there? See, Jesus said yes. Tim read Hebrews chapter 12. Jesus saw the joy that was set before him. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. And because of the joy that was set before him, it was okay to cut life short at 33. It was worth it. It was worth the agony and it was worth the pain because something greater would come of it. Is there something in your life that would be worth that? Something in your life that would drive you so hard that even if it were to mean an early demise, that'd be okay. That's what's missing in the American people. A number of years ago, Harry Holt, he was a farmer in Oregon, went on a trip. He was about to retire and he went on a tour and he was in Southeast Asia traveling through Korea and he saw a lot of the uh, orphans and beggars that are out on the Korean streets. In fact, they're over most of the known world because selfish people always punish kids first. I've been to Korea and I've been to Seoul and I've seen those kids begging in the streets, some of them six, seven, eight, no mother, no father, all alone. If they can get enough bread for today, they'll live. If not, they'll die. Harry Holt saw those kids. But unlike just being a tourist, when he left and came back to the States, God put on his life a call, a mission to help those children. And so he began to arrange the opportunity for those kids to come to America and to become children of uh, parents who had no children, uh, uh, couples who had no children. And he began to do this by the hundreds he began to do it. Now Harry, just to give you a little background on him, had a heart attack earlier in his life. And as he expended himself for these things, his doctors started warning him, you know, you better watch it. You better slow down because, you know, this could kill you if you overexert yourself. And you know, in that moment, Harry could have dropped back and punted the mission to somebody else. And he could have gone back to the farm or retired and 
walked every day and eaten the right foods and breathed the fresh air of Oregon and lived five or six additional years. But for what? See, that's the question. For what? So instead, he gave himself diligently to those kids. And when he died, they buried him on a Korean hillside. And all the English-speaking newspapers in the world gave an account of Harry Holt's mission. Never mentioned that he was a farmer, but his mission that had made a difference. You know what was exciting? I shared that illustration. I, I just read it in a, a book this week. And Janet Hughes came down with Tom. You know, Janet works for us here at the church with their little Korean boy, Matthew, who the Holtz had arranged for them to adopt. A person who has a passion in life, a person who's a magnetic person, that is not a person who necessarily has a, has a flamboyant outward exterior. It's a person who has a clear sense of who they are. It's a person who knows where they're going in life and they're not veering right or left. They're just marking a straight line to the end and they're willing to die for it. They're exciting. That's what is the kind of person that Jesus Christ wants you to be. But he can only be that kind of person to you and he can only do that in your life when you open up your heart and let him ride in to your city as king. Let's pray together. And Lord, we're thankful that you did just that, that you were willing to expend yourself for us. We're thankful, Father, that Jesus Christ walked this earth and as he contemplated his choices, he decided to yield himself to you and to not fight your call on his life. Lord, we're thankful that he was willing to go into uncomfortable situations, not necessarily being a person who wanted to attract attention. On this day, 2,000 years ago, he attracted a lot of attention to himself, and I'm sure it was uncomfortable. But he had us on his mind, and he was willing to die. Lord, I pray that you would use this moment in the Scripture to encourage us to think hard about our life, and Lord, with so many choices, I pray that you would allow us to make the right ones so that we would know who we are, where we're going, how to get there. Lord, help us to be a passionate person in life that draws others, that encourages others because we know that there is a joy set before us as well. We give you praise for this evening. We thank you for our worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.